Oh, yeah. Hey, Dale's Ooh. face got covered by TBR. Oh, man. <laughs> this is all I got right here. This is all I got. The space. <laughs> Hello, all, and welcome to TBR Con's panel on world building and your place in it. My name is Beth Kabler, and I'm the owner of Before We Go blog and one of the lead uh, editors for Room Dark magazine. Um, thank you all for watching, and I just want to introduce our panel. We've got uh, Angus Watson, Brian D. Anderson, Dale Lucas, Angela Borg, Travis Riddle, Jay Rushing, and I'm just going to let him go, ask some questions, and I feel like this is going to be a really fun panel. So thank you for tuning in. Um, first off, panelists, please introduce yourselves. Tell us what you got going on. One by one, anybody? <laughs> oh, man. All right, fine. I'll break the seal. <laughs> Hi, I'm Dale Lucas. Uh, I am the author of the uh, Fifth Ward series, uh, published by Orbit Books, consisting of three books. Um, uh, First Watch, Friendly Fire, and Good Company. I've also written... Um, uh, novel for um, Black Library, the folks who do Warhammer 40K and uh, Warhammer Age of Sigmar. And I'm working on another one for them now. Um, basically, I do like fantasy, horror, um, sort of modern pulp, and everything in between. That sounds fantastic. Who's next? Uh, That's next. Brian. Am I top left hand corner for everybody else, or is it just for me? Uh, yeah. yeah. No, you're good. Okay. I'll go next. My name is Brian D. Anderson. The D is for a double dose of my poor writing. <laughs> I um, was an um, uh, indie author for many, many years. Uh, wrote The Godling Chronicles, Dragon Vane. Um, I co-authored uh, the Akiri series with Stephen Savile, who some of you might know. I um, also wrote um, in the middle of a series called The Veil. And um, most recently, I public, um, um, signed a three-book deal with Tor Books for The Sorcerer's Song, which this is the first book, The Bard's Blade. The second book is A Chorus of Fire, lovely covers done by a fantastic artist by the name of Felix Ortiz. So check him out if you get a chance. Um, the final book in the series uh, is coming out early next year, but probably about in about 12 months. And I'm also finishing up the Akiri series, the Goblin Chronicles sequel, and uh, the last book in the Veil, um, all in some of them at the same time and most of them in order. And that's what I'm doing. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, Angus, yeah, you go ahead and go. Yeah, I'm Angus Watson. The cat's just come in. Um, I am the author, I'm a, published by Orbit. Of two trilogies. Uh, the first is the Iron Age trilogy, which is a historical fantasy set in Iron Age Britain, uh, where the Romans come over. And the second is um, You Die When You Die, which is Vikings in America a thousand years ago, uh, another trilogy. I'm currently working on a middle grade book um, set in an alternate universe when dinosaurs haven't died out. It's sort of cross between Harry Potter and the Flintstones. Nice. Um, <laughs> I've just moved house, which is why my background's not very simple. Sorry about that sort of stuff. It's a bit busy. I've just noticed. Um, and yeah, and I, I'm, I'm British and I'm currently in England. Uh, Dave, you wanna go? 
Yeah, sure. Um, I'm Jim. Um, I just debuted my first novel this year, Radio. Um, it's a fantasy noir set in 1928's Paris. It has uh, the old gods and mind control and lots of uh, dark shenanigans. Um, it was SPFBO semifinalist, which was pretty great. I'm excited about that. Yeah. Um, other than that, I um, am an expat living in Switzerland and uh, blog about writing and cocktails and random stuff. Uh, Travis? Hi, I'm Travis. I uh, have self-published a few standalone uh, books like Balm Spring and The Narrows and Spit and Song. Um, and last year I started my first series uh, called Houndstooth. Uh, book one was Flesh Eater. And book two, which is called Mother Pig, uh, is coming out this summer. All right. Angela? Okay, I'm Angela Board, and I am an indie author. I um, my book Fortune's Fool placed second in uh, SPFBO five, which was the 2019-2020 version. Um, it's a Renaissance-based historical fantasy. Um, and right now, I have two books in that series: Fortune's Fool and Smuggler's Fortune, which is a long novella um, that's kind of a standalone prequel. I'm working on the second book in that series um, and uh, also a uh, portal fantasy that's the first book in another series um, and I hope to have both of those out this year. Um, otherwise, I'm a, I'm a, um, I guess most, I, uh, I have nine kids and I homeschool in Mississippi and uh, that's my other claim to fame, I guess. But anyway, that's who I am. <laughs> I have no response to that whatsoever. Most <laughs> <laughs> <Nope. Well>, people don't. <laughs> that is amazing. Do you homeschool the whole time or just because in pandemics? No, the whole time. The whole wow. time. We started when my oldest was young. So we've been doing it all the way through. Good for you. Yeah. I'm school too. Right. Yeah. My, my beard got grayer just thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they've all given me a few gray hairs. <laughs> yeah. I think not believe it. Beer has given everybody gray hair. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, it probably wouldn't do me any good. I mean, I've already messed up one kid. I can mess up eight more. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, my first question: um, Can you tell me what world building means to you as an author? You want to just go in the order that we introduced ourselves? Yeah, I just want people to speak up. Oh, thanks a lot, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want it so formal. Yep. Just, we're just having a conversation. <laughs> uh, I think world building is just. <laughs> It's basically just establishing that illusion that whatever you're telling your story about, the place that you're telling your story about and the people you're telling your story about um, is something real and not just something that came right out of your head like it did. And um, while we usually think of world building as being a thing that just happens in fantastic fiction, whether it's fantasy or sci-fi or, or, or whatever, um, 
I've always kind of felt like it really just applies to everything. Even if you're writing a realistic novel set in the everyday world, there's a certain amount of world building that goes into that because people have to believe whatever space you're writing about and they have to kind of invest in it. Um, so yeah, that's really what it all comes down to is just finding ways to make all these things that just came out of your head seem like they have actual like weight and heft to them. Yeah. For my part, world building for me is secondary. Um, I, I, I enjoy world building a lot, but I always, I always start with the plot, the characters and the cast. I'm a firm believer that a good story can be put into any setting. And if you can't take your story out of one world and put it into, say, the Old West and it not still be a good story with just a few minor adjustments, you might want to rethink what you're doing. So before I even start world building, I want to make sure that the plot and the, and the premise to my story can translate into any world I want to put it in. And then I start with, and then I start with the world building. And then, um, you know, I mean, I tend to write more classic fantasy. So um, I've been greatly inspired by like guys like Brandon Sanderson and Rothfuss and the way they, and the way they go about it. And um, some of my more recent works. And to me, I think it's something you, uh, that is very, very important, but also you can get entirely lost in and oh, and and kind of leave your story behind if you get too deep into it. Yeah, <clears throat> Sorry. Um, for me, uh, I've done historical fantasy so far. So world building is really a way to explore both literally and, and um, metaphorically a world which I'm fascinated in. So I can go to Iron Age Britain through reading everything there is to read about Iron Age Britain, which isn't that much. Um, and also then go to Rome and read everything I can find about well, some of the best stuff about Rome, I suppose, um, and live in that world for a while. And then literally in the, that my series set in America, I got to drive between Chicago and Las Vegas twice. Um, <laughs> And what I love about the USA, which you don't really get in England, is that you can get up at dawn using sort of time jet lag against itself and go drive into a national park like Death Valley, for example, if you overshoot Las Vegas a bit on that journey. And you can drive your car and you can go up track and then you can walk half an hour and you can be somewhere where no one's been for a month or two. And it's exactly the same as it was 10,000 years ago and really feel that you live in your world. Um, and that's what, that's what world building is. World building for me is, is time travel, really. So far, I may well get more fantastical, and actually my current book is Dinosaurs, so I get to learn about them. But yeah, I like the time travel, and also just the excuse to, to go to different places and walk about trying to trash out a plot. That's it from me. Yeah. Um, I think for me, with world building, it's all about immersion. Um, I think that the best world building is that which, like, basically all of the details are just kind of coming at you in the background and you can focus on the character and the story and, and all the twists and turns that are coming at you without needing to think about the world. But at the same time, you can fully picture it. You, you feel a part of it. Um, that, that's really what I try to strive for with world building. Okay. What about you, Travis? Yeah, I kind of agree with Brian where my focus is more on like the characters rather than like whatever world I'm trying to create but um 
my books tend to be a lot more like character driven and kind of slow paced. Um, and so the way I use the world is to like kind of show like how the characters interact with it, like the places they inhabit, like the, the cultures they come from and what activities they partake in and what food they eat and use that to kind of like flesh out their characters and their dynamics between each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I find that doing that kind of world building to like come up with a type of cuisine or something and then have the characters sit down at a restaurant and just like eat and get to know each other. Um, that's where a lot of my world building comes in. Yeah, I'm kind of the same as Travis. Um, I, uh, when I get an idea for a story, it's it's not the the story's not there yet. It's just the character. A character walks in, and then it's a matter of figuring out who they are, where they come from, what their story is, and in the in the process of that, figuring out who they are, their history, you know, what has made them how they are today. They come from a world. So then I've have to go figure out what this world is like, you know, and as I'm putting the story together, then I'm figuring out, you know, like um, little bits and pieces of, you know, big pieces, like what the setting's going to be like, you know, like where the places are that they're going to move through and who they're going to deal with and, and what kind of attitudes the other characters are going to have and what kind of confrontations they can set up because they have different beliefs or they have different histories or, you know, whatever. So a lot of it generates plot. And then as I'm going through the story, writing the actual story, I'll, questions will occur to me along the way. And then I'll go in and I'll research those. And I write historical fantasy too, which is a little bit not set in actual history, but using history kind of like, you know, um, as an analog sort of a little bit, you know, as an inspiration. So they're secondary fantasy worlds based on cultures here. And so I go and I look at time periods and and stuff of what I want to do. And then I like fill in things about like food and, you know, if I get into, and I want to describe the smell of a soap and I think, gee, I wonder what Renaissance soap smelled like. Then I'll go Google it. <laughs> and that's kind of what world building is like. The magic of Google. Yeah. I hate to think what Renaissance people smelled like. <laughs> cloves. They smelled like cloves. Like horse dung. They had to have smelled like horse dung. Permeating everything. <laughs> Zestfully clean, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, are there rules that y'all adhere to when you're creating your world? Like, you know, is there, is there, do you have a certain set of things that you try to adhere to? You're only going to describe, you know, the food. You're only going to go so many levels and that's your world building. Uh, I mean, I know. And an interesting thing is uh, it's interesting that we have other folks here who do historical fantasy because the first two books that I wrote that weren't published were that one of them was set during the Spanish conquest of the Aztecs. And one of them was set um, in ancient Egypt during the Roman occupation in the second century. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also I, you know, developed, but never got around to writing all kinds of other things and researched all kinds of other places. I tend to approach my world building from a historical perspective. Even if I'm doing pure fantasy, I'm pulling from the stuff I do know about the past. Um, 
but I think in the moment and in the book itself, it's just a matter of finding the right balance where obviously you want your world building to inform everything, but you don't want to bog people down with a, yeah. with too much detail or too much of this or too much of that. So that's more of a uh, sort of an intuitive thing rather than a, a perfectly logical one for me. I just kind of have to find the sweet spot and figure out what's too much and what's too little. Well, there you can get bogged down in world building and a lot of people, especially, you know, people who like are really into it, who are coming out of say gaming and, and where you do have to do, do old, a, a tremendous amount of detail um, because it's kind of a first person experience in the world. But for me, I try to pick maybe half a dozen primary focuses and um, I mean, everything else that gets mentioned but if I go into the monetary aspects of the world, the food lore, the, you know, all the, all these little details, I'm going to spend half a book doing nothing but describing this world. And that slams the brake on any kind of decent pacing I might establish. So a lot of what I put, uh, how much of the world I flesh out intentionally is, uh, has to do with my pacing. If I've set a fast pace for a book, the world can't be as fleshed out because it's just going to keep jamming the brakes on my pacing. It's going to shock the reader out of the story and they're not going to have a good time. So um, I usually fo focus on religion, about four um, uh, architecture, um, things of that, th the, the big things yeah. and um, anything minor I can drip and drive in there without the necessity for any kind of information dumps or anything like that. I can just drip it and drab it. I can even use them as um, vehicles to create suspense. You know, I could like um, mention an item that somebody's wearing around their neck, not give any explanation for it until like three chapters later, you know? So, but the main, my main focus is usually on maybe half a dozen primary elements of a world. Okay. It's a good, it's a good rule. I, I do something pretty similar for me. I, I think of it kind of as the, I usually stick to three or four kind of big umbrella suspensions of disbelief okay. and, and that's it. Everything else is completely real world. And that way, if I can sneak those three ideas into the reader's head and they're like on board with just those few things then everything else trickles down from there, I can build a world that seems completely real. So long as you believe these three things. And so there, there isn't this constant like, oh, that's new. Now I have to figure out how that works in the world. Oh, this is a new thing. Oh, how does this work in the world? It comes out in the beginning. It's up front, and then everything can just flow. Um, so you're not you're not doing uh, much of a learn. Uh, you're not doing a real steep learning curve. Then you're doing a kind I, of. A I, I try not to, and that's just who I am as a reader. And so that's just I pass that on to my writing. That's a that's a big style style difference because I yeah, know authors write whole world histories, you know, so many levels deep. And they, as, as uh, Brian said, they come from gaming backgrounds usually, and then they start writing the book, and they have this like basically <coughs> information to go from. Well, the big thing about doing it that way is that it's perfectly okay to do it that way. You just need to be really smart about what you then decide to share with the reader. Mm 
Yeah. Because just because you know it doesn't mean that they need to know it. Yeah. Well, Sanderson does it brilliantly. You know, I mean, think about the first book in the um, Stormlight Archives. And you're, meet, you're meeting Kaladin. He has uh, slave brands on his forehead. You got Syl for the first time coming in. This is at the very beginning of the book. And you have no idea. He talks about rock buds and all sorts of stuff that can become important to this. You have no idea what any of this stuff is. And I think a lot of, uh, especially aspiring writers, get get afraid of that. And that's where the information dumps start coming in. They're afraid they're going to lose the reader if they, if the reader doesn't understand everything that you're telling the reader. And yeah. it's like, you no, know, that's really not going to happen. If the story is compelling, the reader will hang in there. Matter of fact, they'll hang in there just to find out what the hell that thing is. <laughs> True. That leads into another another good question. Like, when do you info dump? When is info dump not a bad word? You know, because is there any circumstances where you can use that in your writing and have it be successful? You use it. Um, you use info dumping to show off how much research you've done. What I'm doing is proving that I've read a few books and they delete. Um, you, you're not allowed to do it, but it's very, very tempting to prove yeah. that you've read the books and, and done the bit. Um, I mean, you can sort of do it if you're taking your character on a walk through town. You can say, and they passed a band who were wearing hats that had feathers in them and their hair was soiled with bare fat and they were playing out, but it's, you shouldn't. You should do it if they're having a fight and they use an antler bone flute to jab into the guy's face because that's when you introduce the idea they had antler bone flutes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and then say, did you know about the antler bone flutes? Yeah. Little, so that's what you do now. <laughs> um, I will say, I I'm using footnotes at the moment, which I quite like because writing a children's book, I'm, my protagonist is a 12-year-old who's not actually that interesting as a character, to be honest. He's, um, you know, the bland protagonist. So it's nice that I can use the footnotes to be a sort of witty, cynical observer of his world. Um, and I think it works quite well like that, at least I hope it does, although no publishers have snapped it up yet, so maybe it doesn't work that well. Uh, Anybody else? I kind of... I, I mean, I I try to avoid it for the most part, unless it's like a vital piece of information that like one character is telling to another character who doesn't know it. Otherwise, I'll throw out like terms and locations and things without any explanation because I feel like that's just way more realistic. And it kind of just all comes back to the characters again for me, where like if my main character like doesn't know what this thing is, like with the narration style I do, he's not going to like be sitting there thinking about like the history of like, like you said, this antler bone flute or something like he doesn't know. He just knows that this thing exists. And so he accepts that. Yeah. Well, you're talking about what, what you were just mentioning is uh, a kind of like a Watson character. That's a, that's actually a, a, a tool that, you know, a lot of, a lot of writers do, you know, you have somebody there that doesn't understand. So somebody has to explain it to them. Or you do like what Harry Potter did, and you experience the world as Harry Potter experiences the world. Right. That's a way to do. It. That's a that, that's a way to do that. Info dumping. I, I you know I made I, I did that a lot when early on in my career. But what I learned was the less I do it, the more interesting the story becomes because I get all these little aha moments that I can sprinkle out through everything that, that you know. So the reader can say, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that from, you know, back in chapter whatever. Oh, OK. So that's what that means. And and I, like I said, it's you. 
there's no right way to do anything. You know, I mean, there's no wrong and right way. I mean, a skilled storyteller can make it interesting. Just, you know, I mean, conventional wisdom tells you, no, you shouldn't. But, you know, I've seen it it done effectively. I mean, if you're good enough, you can get away with damn near anything. (laughs) Well, I I think, Brian, your point earlier is really important about letting pacing throttle all of your information drip. I mean, that's really vital. The second you start slowing anything down just to explain something you're you're already losing the battle yeah i think i remember hearing a i can't remember who it was but some writer they said something about um it's always got to tie in with what a character is feeling about something if you're going to stop the story to give the reader a bunch of information it's got to be coming through the filter of the character that you're following and why that information matters to them you know, why they need to know that or why they're concerned about why things are the way they are, et cetera. So maybe that's a good rule of thumb, you know, is how, how invested is your character in that information you're trying to get across to your reader? Okay. Well, you know, talking about footnotes, um, when do you think it's a good idea to use maps, footnotes, and dependencies in world building? <laughs> I mean, I love maps as just kind of a bonus thing. I'm yeah. the kind of guy that when yeah. I when I buy a book and it's got a cool map in it, I love the maps. I love making maps. Um, but I it's not necessarily a requirement. It's just kind of a cool extra. You know? Yeah, me as a reader, like I never refer to those maps, to be honest. It doesn't concern really. me really. But like as a writer as a writer for all of my stuff, I do just like draw out maps for myself so that I like can get the continuity right and I don't just screw up saying like where the geography is and, and names of places and things like that. Yeah. And I've also found it's been a fun kind of like writing exercise because I can make a map of like the whole country and like name a bunch of towns. Um, and then I can just like pepper those into like the story even if I wasn't thinking about them at the start of it or it can like introduce like a a narrative challenge for me if like I put a river there and then all of a sudden the characters need to go that way. Now they have to deal with a river if I wasn't like planning on that in the first place. So I kind of like doing it and then like having to adhere to whatever I came up with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have maps and glossaries in my books because readers wanted them there. You know, it's like, I don't do all that stuff beforehand myself. I kind of, do it more on the fly. I think I may be a little bit different than a lot of other writers because I don't generate like a lot of world building stuff before I start a story. I get like a basic level of understanding and a basic level of what the plot is going to be. And then I start writing and I do it in chunks. And sometimes I don't know what I need in a world until I get there. So I don't have like the giant documents. I have to generate those after the fact for the book when it's published, basically. It's like the glossary was the last thing I did for Fortune's Fool. Mm -hmm. And it was because people told me they wanted a glossary to refer to when they read a book and people told me they liked that. So I I did it, but but that's the only reason. I will sometimes scrawl really scribbly maps in my notebook to try to figure out like, especially if they're in a building and they're trying to get out of it and it's got like lots of hallways and whatever stuff. I'll draw myself a scribbly map and 
get really annoyed trying to get them out of a place like if I'm especially if I'm stuck because I'm often stuck when I do that but um, but that's that's basically what I do it's I don't use them a lot myself um, I, I think you don't need maps in the same way you don't need beer um, I love <laughs> That's <laughs> uh, um, exactly right. I like I like using a map even when I'm walking around somewhere. And I'm usually you know within reach of a map. You know, I've got this. I love looking maps all the time, and I love having maps in my book. Unfortunately, I'm a terrible drawer, so I have to get someone. Well, so far I've got other people to draw my maps, and I've never been happy. I, of course I have, they've been brilliant, but I think that I should be doing them myself to get exactly what I want. Through. I like to point out that There's some good apps these days that you can actually build a map with. I, yeah. I, I, yeah, really, like, I haven't used it myself, but I know some people who have. Tor made me put put a map together for this thing. I, I usually don't include it in the book. but I'm very lazy as well. It takes time, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, I had a. I tried to use one of those map apps, you know, the software, online software, and it it didn't work out well. So I hired yeah. mine. Yeah, it, it was it was like good. the learning curve was hard, and it just looked like I had done it on a, you know, I, that I was trying to learn a software. My, you know, I was a very beginner, so <laughs> I gave up. It was too much time. The series I'm working, I'm going to be working on after I finish the Sorcerer song. Is this is a this is a world with two separate continents with dozens of countries and cultures and stuff. So I'm I'm going to have to do the map. I, I, there's no way around it, and it's just too big for me to keep track of it all in my head. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Especially if you're writing these long epics. You know what I mean? They um. Sometimes you can just lose track of where you are. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. is it is it a problem with maps that you that they're difficult to see on a Kindle or e-reader? They are. The, yeah. Yes. It's, yes. It, you run into like a similar world problem with graphic novels. You know, yeah. To, to yeah. read a graphic novel, it's just not the same as reading yeah. a book. Buy more paperbacks. The the audience would like you to put you don't need maps in the same way you don't need beer on a shirt. (laughs) (laughs) You can't can't have that Scottish of a first name and not need beer. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's a law about that. And also, I want to remind the audience, if you guys have questions or anything you want to ask for the authors, put them in the chat, and we'll try and sneak them in. Okay. They've just put in the chat. It's quite busy. It's very yeah. busy. <laughs> I, I'm a trained geographer. Likes maps. Yes. <laughs> um, the next question I have is, uh, we've all been affected by 2020's real-world hellscape type events in some way or another. Um, do you allow real-world events to impact your world building, or do you in your story creation, or do you have like a line of demarcation? You don't like to let outside events affect the story. The world. I mean, I think that kind of just happens naturally. Yeah. It's a, It's almost like when people talk about writers having their 
their social or their political ideas trickling into a book, you know, maybe, maybe setting out to write a tract is a bad idea, but you're a human being and you have opinions and those things are just going to find their way in. So it's kind of the same with the stuff going on in the world around you. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's just going to be there almost whether you want it to or not in some way or another case in point i've been i've been working on a thing off and on for the last year that's actually that actually is historical and also fantastical that takes place in new york in the 1920s and um i found myself referring constantly to the uh the spanish fever epidemic from 1918 and it's it's it, it ends up being this touchstone for a lot of the characters because almost everybody has lost somebody and and it's still fresh in recent memory. So, yeah, in in a way like that, things do seep in. They it happens. I rarely I rarely um, touch on current events, but I I mean, like you said, we, we all we're we're all a collection of our own stories and the stories that we've heard, and it's impossible for that not to bleed into your storytelling. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I yeah, mean, writing for me is like fiction. Go ahead, Angela. Yeah. Writing for me is kind of the way I process all this stuff in my head too, you know, all the emotions and thoughts and anyway. And so, um, you know, even like the imagery sometimes that comes out, sometimes it's not even like the um, issues that, that come out into the story, but just the imagery, I find myself using a lot of masks. I mean, I write, it, it, you know, my, it's Renaissance inspired Italy, basically, and they used a lot of masks, but those, the masks keep getting more and more important, I think, in there. And plus, too, I had started already before, before all the pandemic stuff happened, um, talking about, like, you know, I mean, the Renaissance, they had problems with fevers and stuff like that, but it just sort of gained in importance as some of the plot went on. And then I realized when I looked back, I was like, oh no, I was already starting to hear this stuff and it, you know, it was kind of coming out. So I kind of, mm -hmm. it, it just sort of seeps in. Yeah, um, we have a question from Arena. Says, what's a world building aspect of your own work that you think is unique and are particularly proud of? Nothing. Mm -hmm. I am under no delusions that, I, that I'm that I'm original. <laughs> <laughs> everything I, I, I'm a firm believer in that everything's been done. I'm just trying to put my own take on it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I I tend to just because setting matters to me as a just as a touchstone. I like to travel when I'm able to travel. And to me, that's part of what fiction is. It's, it's mental travel. And that's part of what world building is, is, is filling out that travel. Um, so I really like having a strong sense of place in the stuff I do. And I feel like uh, I've heard it from enough people now that I feel like I do that and do it well, but I always want to get better at that. Mm -hmm. Are there any aspects of world building? Oh, I'm sorry. No, I don't worry. It wasn't very interesting. Oh. <laughs> Are there any aspects of world building that you guys shy away from? I don't ever really talk about politics or anything that grandiose, both because I 
I don't really like to to write about such like sort of like large scale conflicts like that. And also I'm an idiot and I don't really understand any of it myself. And I don't want to, I'm also lazy and I don't want to do like the research for it. So, yeah. I just stick, I just stick to smaller subjects that I know maybe a little bit about. Okay. Else? I don't take things off limits. Long. You know I mean? Personally, I mean, I know a lot of people get freaked out if they're tackling something that's not part of their own personal um, cultural history or something like that. But as long as you show show, show the proper respect and, and do the research and don't misrepresent something, I don't feel there's anything that I wouldn't do that I would feel bad about it so long as I so long as I didn't, you know, half ass it. Hmm. That kind of leads into my next. But you question. have the right to half ass it if you want. I think. I think yeah. it's important. Yeah. It's the right yeah. Yeah. If you want the right not to buy my books. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I stand up for your right. You're allowed to do that. <laughs> I always find this kind of entertaining when talking to authors. Um, I know some authors go on real deep dives into like a very specific thing. Yeah. <clears throat> <laughs> Do you guys have any real specific things that you have gone on deep, deep dives, such as like, I don't know, Renaissance buttons or, you know, do you know, Angela, do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking, I don't think buttons, I don't think I've done buttons yet. I don't, <laughs> that's probably the next thing. <laughs> something very like minute, but you've gone on a real deep dive and you know a whole lot about it now. I forget everything pretty quickly. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, I know, I, I know I've done it, but I couldn't tell you what I've typically done it with. I was reading about the history of pipe smoking yesterday yeah. <laughs> and looking at pictures of pipes, but I don't really, I mean, that was because I didn't know anything about it, so... It has happened to me more than once. I'm not being monitored because the FBI would have kicked my door down. Oh, no kidding. Because search history. Can I ask, did pipes originate on both sides of the Atlantic or did the one come from the other? Um. Okay, now you're going to put me in spot. But um, Sorry. No, no, I think it was both sides of the Atlantic because on you know in the old world they were very old like clay pipes were around up until the 1800s and they started being made out of different materials but um i believe they were used in i'm fairly sure they were used in the new world as well but well, they were definitely used in the new world but whether they developed in the old world before that or though but i think they yeah were, I mean, yeah Asia they did as well, yeah opium, yeah apparently yeah so that was, I, I don't know. I'll go back and check. Because I was looking at the New World stuff in around the 1700s. This is from my Portal Fantasy, so it was different. It was not Renaissance stuff. but And I, and that is probably the one thing. I did throw them into, they're in my Renaissance, but I didn't check that out. I did check out how to make uh, coffee when coffee made it to Venice and how they made coffee and, you know, that sort of thing. It was basically, and, and those things end up being like three sentences, you know? Yeah. How, the first thing I had to look up when I first started doing, uh, when I first started writing fantasy was how, fa how far a horse can travel in a day. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. 
Do you remember? And do 20 miles. 20 miles. Yeah. 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 20, 30 if you really press it and you have a sturdy horse. Yeah. It's funny. I'm a I'm a very modern suburban kid, and somehow I ended up writing all of these, whether it was historical fantasy or actual fantasy, that's all out in the country, dealing with forests and horses. And I don't know anything about this shit. I really don't. So that's why you go on the deep dive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The industrial technology. I know more about that than I than I did. You know, I've read books on medieval technology, pre, anything pre-industrial. Yeah, you know, you, I mean, you know, a lot more about ancient religions than I ever knew. You know, I mean, so I, I mean, I'm not sitting there pulling directly from any one religion, right. but just sort of a mishmash of, of different aspects that's, uh, that fit the plot. You know, I mean, yeah. you, you 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 learn as you go. I mean, the thing what what you need to know, and luckily we live in an age that this kind of information is rarely available. Twenty years ago. Um, it, it would be a, been a lot harder. Keep the library all the time. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, I got a great question here for um, historical fiction writers: Is historical fiction world building more difficult than creating your own world? It's from Gr Matthews. I mean, no, just Google it. It's easy. You're you're, yeah. you're creating <laughs> less, but you have way more pressure on accuracy. Right. Because you know there's always an expert out there who knows exactly yeah. what you're talking about and they know it better than you do. Yeah. Writing hard science fiction, you gotta get the science right. Yeah. yeah. Someone once got on to me for one of, for a character in my book having genes, and it's a completely like fantasy world. Uh, and so I'm, I'm just thinking like why can, I, why can genes not have been invented in this world? Yeah. <laughs> I had one because um, I say they don't. <laughs> in Age of Iron, I had uh, somebody wrote to me and said that one of my, it's an unpleasant character who used a derogatory term about women. Well, not that derogatory term. He said a woman was hot, and in the it was actually a review. One star. I hardly think they would have used the word hot to describe a woman in the Iron Age. And I said, well, I, I agree, but they also wouldn't have used the word chair or and or hello because they. <laughs> and, and, and I think they, they well have had a base derogatory term women's attractiveness and i think that you know that's a problem i think most of the attacks you get are along that are on that sort of level yeah um, because as you say with historical novels nowadays you can sit there and you go no did they have horseshoes in um 100 bc and yeah. you find out really really quickly so mm -hmm. there's no real excuse you can check it and check it again um and if you do do something like uh, put longbows into a book before they were invented, you could just say, well, actually, you know, historians don't know that much. <laughs> <laughs> we've only got the sources we've got, and I'm saying there were longbows. Yeah. It's your world. You're the guy yeah. in your own world. Writer's choice. Yeah. Yeah. That's what makes it, with the beauty part of a right high fantasy, because you ain't going to worry about it. Well, <laughs> I cheated, and I just base mine on history. Like, it's not history, but it's based on history, so I can do whatever I want. Yeah, like, well, I, I go. I get yeah, the best of both worlds. <laughs> well, that's why I write British Iron Age because there's not much known. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have a, a cultural question for you guys. Um, how does a writer be sensitive uh, to your worlds if they're inspired by, say, like Wuxia or um, uh, the worlds of indigenous peoples? How do you strike that balance? of being sensitive to 
the culture, but still being able to expound on it and, you know, create your own world on top of it. You just try not to be stereotypical was the first step. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, when I write indigenous peoples into my, into my worlds, they, they're not all dark skinned with, with long hair, uh, you know, wearing animal skins. You know what I mean? If they're wearing animal skins, they can look any kind of different ways. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a, that's a, first and foremost. You get find out what the stereotypes for that t- that that you know the more ignorant out there might you know spout off and avoid that. You know that, that, that you, you do your best to be respectful, and you do your be- you, you do your best do do your research, and don't fall into that trap of um, every Native American style culture looks like Native Americans. Why do they have right. to look like that? You're, you're writing fantasy. They can look any way you want. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, having written about Native Americans, a lot of them didn't look like Native Americans. You know, there was a colossal variety, which is, you know, something you discover as you delve into history, which I think is part of the reason you should delve into these histories. Uh, there, are, there, there are ideas that you shouldn't write about cultures that aren't yours and that you don't belong to. Um, I disagree with that strongly. I think uh, you know you you shouldn't let where you're from hold you back in what you do or say or, or observe. But I do at the same time realize that other people don't think that, uh, mm-hmm. and I think you have to listen. Um, I think I was watching an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm earlier on today uh, as I unpacked the boxes, and um, and they're over there. No, they're not. Yeah, there we go. Um, <laughs> and um, Larry David was suggesting that every waiter in the restaurant he was investing in should have uh, you should have a sorry have a bell on the table so you can call a waiter, and obviously that's massively insensitive and everyone who hears the idea is horrified. But for him, from his point of view, it seems like quite a good idea, and for any you know you can see why. Um, and I'm aware that I can be the Larry David, and so I think the key thing is to listen to people. So if you have written about these subjects, uh, listen to your editors, uh, and if you don't have editors, yeah. get them to read it and listen to them uh, and. Um, Take what they say on board and don't dismiss it as nonsense because you think you know better. Yeah, I yeah. hire sensitivity readers. Yeah. So yeah. I have hired sensitivity readers for um, Smuggler's Fortune. Um, I hired them for Fool's Promise, which I'm writing right now. And then my Portal Fantasy, I also use some. And they, you know, it's, um, I try to be, <clears throat> you know, I want my characters to be people first and foremost. So if you're treating your characters with respect, then that's the first step, right? They're they're people, and um, not ideas or cardboard cutouts or they're, um, and then and then I I I do um, send send it to I try to find readers who um, have the cultural background from what I'm trying to write from, and then I'll you know give it to them and they'll usually point out places where I've um, you know left gaps. I haven't dealt with issues that I should have dealt with, or maybe that um, I've, you know, accidentally done something that I, you know, written something some way that that I shouldn't have written. So um, I think listening is key. You you need to like be open and 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 just listen to what people are telling you. Yeah. Like what Nico Project X said, can uh, hashtag cancel jeans. It's <laughs> <laughs> another thing to put on a t-shirt. <laughs> well, I, th- I think POV matters a lot too. Um, you know, as we're researching cultures and religions and things like that, 
as the author, you have a point of view and you're looking out at it. Right. And if you're writing that in your book, that's just as normal. But if you're getting into somebody else's head, that's a completely different can of worms. And that's going to take a lot more research and a lot more at talking with people, um, listening to people. That's, that's where things get a little bit more hairy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, if you're going to tackle like some, something that's completely alien to you, I mean, um, say you're going to write um, a story, one of the main characters, um, it, you say you're writing something contemporary and the character's trans, um, unless you have a, a, a deep knowledge of what, uh, and not just know one person, like have a deep knowledge of what the trans community goes through, what these people, uh, what these people uh, think, how they feel, not just one person, like a really get to know uh, know what from their perspective what it's like then you probably should you shouldn't go yeah. you shouldn't go there unless yeah. you know, because all you're going to do is piss people off for no good reason yeah yeah okay yeah why is it a very important question why yeah. are you doing it what, what, what yeah. yeah yeah is there a reason for it you know i mean are you doing this just to be controversial um is it is it, it does it do anything for the story mm -hmm. um you want you want to have as much representation as you can but you also want to do it properly yeah you know you don't want to misrepresent mm -hmm. okay um I know that you all write fantasy novels of all sorts. You guys have books span the gamut of the fantasy genre. Um, how do you think world building differs in the different subgenres of fantasy? Like, would you say world building in grimdark novels needs certain things versus urban fantasy versus high fantasy? You know, are there certain things that the audience expects? Because it's a different subgenre. I think so. I, I mean, you got, you got to know your genre if you're writing in it. You know, you got to be steeped in that particular knowledge and know know what what readers are looking for. You know, I, mean, I think that's I think that's just intelligent to do that. Yeah. But you know, I mean, but it's all going to really boil down to the story. If it's a good story, it's a good story. Uh, readers will like it, even if you do something out, outside the constraints of what's typical for your genre. Yeah. Okay. Having a having a clear idea of what you're trying to do in ter in narrative terms is probably is in a way I think more important than understanding what the conventions of the genre are. But that matters too. You want to bring both of those things together: what the reader is expecting, and then what you're specifically trying to achieve, and figure out the best way to present that. Um, and the same thing, the further you stray from our reality, the further you have to be aware that your world will affect your world, as it were. Yeah. So that if it's got a particularly strong magic, or if you've got dragons, you've got to have a look at how people build castles, for example. Yeah. If teleportation, you know, how is that going to affect social structures and everything like that, and privacy. Yeah. Um, so basically, the further you go from the normal world, the, I think probably the harder it is, or certainly the more of a balancing act you have to do. Yeah. Well, and that actually brings up something that I've often thought about, especially where it comes to fantasy and sci-fi, is trying to find a way to establish what's normal in this 
fantastical setting that you've got. If it, that is often one of the hardest things, people come to the book maybe knowing that there's going to be magic or there's going to be dragons or there's going to be spaceships or whatever, but trying to quickly and efficiently get across this is what a normal day is like for a person in a world like this. And this is what they're used to. And this is completely off the grid from that. Uh, that I think Tolkien does that brilliantly. Um, I, I know everybody refers to Tolkien a lot. You know, he's kind of the godfather of, of uh, high fantasy. Yeah. But the way he opens it up in the Shire, yeah, and, and, and it's this day, daily, daily life. I actually did the uh, by request. I had a different uh, in the Bard's Blade, the first book at, um, at, of the tour tour series. Mm-hmm. They, um, it was a completely different um, opening. It was um, an action opening, which is conventional wisdom says open it with a bang. But they said when they described what they asked, wanted me to do, I was like, you mean you wanted me to do sort of a long expected party type thing? <laughs> <laughs> and they, and they, I mean, not written like Tolkien, obviously, but, right. you know, but with, with that sort of same feel. And so I did that with a day-to-day life and where, where you're experiencing what a normal day or, or even a, a bad day in somebody's world is. I, I think that's you got to hit the nail on the head there. Yeah. Establishing a norm, establishing something like that is really important. Yeah. And I do think something like in the subgenre of like slice of life, the world building could be a lot more important because that genre is basically all about sitting with the characters and like being immersed in that world. So like you as a writer really want to get those details right and really present the world in a detailed, believable way. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. What you said about teleportation, how, how does that affect other aspects? If yeah. you know, even, even if you're doing a caste structure for society, how does that affect the daily lives of different people within within uh, within your world as some so you're going to have yeah. to establish you know i mean there's going to be rich and poor unless you're doing a more um you know sort of utopian style where everybody has the same amount which is uncommon you know so you're going to have to establish not just one but several different daily routines and 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 perspectives depending on you know or depending on where in the world you happen to be at any given moment and nudity can't be taboo anymore because anyone might pop up at any second. <laughs> uh, you know, and I also know that you guys have written novels of all different lengths. You know, some of you have written short stories, some of you have written novellas. Can you tell me a little bit about the difference in world building that you have to do in, say, like a novella or a short story versus a regular sized novel? I mean, for me, I think w- with a short story, you're you're really mood building more so than you are world building. Okay. It's all about what your characters are feeling, what you want your readers to be feeling, and then you're just getting these little slices of the world, but trying to flesh something out isn't nearly as possible, let alone important. Right. Yeah. 30 pages to... Fonda Lee's really good. John, John Bob, love, Fon- love me some Fonda Lee. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, the Jade books are fantastic. <laughs> but yeah, it, when it, I'm I'm because I'm a fussy uh, sort of a research junkie, and I can often spend a lot of time even for a short story, um, 
depending on what I need for the story. And the main difference is that whereas with a novel, I might do a lot of prep beforehand with a short story, I might take a shot at a first draft without worrying about it. But then before I do a second draft, I'm going to sit down and say, okay, what do I need to know here? And how deep do I need to go into it? And then I can, I can often spend a lot of time finding information just to put a sentence here and a sentence there. Mm -hmm. But I don't recommend that. That's just how I roll. <laughs> I think it also. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, I think it also depends on like whether you're writing a short story or a novella in a in like a world that you've developed already, you know, or you're just writing a standalone. Because the short stories and novellas in the already made worlds in the wider universes, they're just ways to like kind of focus in on one aspect or one character and show like the smaller um, sphere, I guess, that those characters move in. So you're just taking like a little bit of the world instead mm -hmm. of being able to spin it out more, like in a longer. And it's easier if you have more of that world fleshed out, say if you're in a, if you're writing that short story after the first couple books in a series. So you're not, you know, and it depends on if you're an also God, if you're a discovery writer or if you're, a, um, or if you're, a, um, uh, you know, an outliner, you know, I mean, that, that, that'll impact it tremendously. I'm a little bit of both. I try to outline and then about halfway through the outline, it collapses because I get another idea. <laughs> um, I love the idea that a short story can just take part in a sort of little cul-de-sac in the, in a great big fantastical world. Like um, I've just read to my youngest, uh, George's Marvelous Medicine as his nighttime book. Uh, and in that book by Roald Dahl, um, it's completely okay that the granny grows to 80 feet tall and bursts through the house. Apart from that, there's nothing particularly but the animals grow as well. But you just wonder what else is going on in this world that this happens and everyone goes, oh, look, granny's growing 80 feet tall. And, and you know, that's weird, but not, not a massive surprise. Yeah. Um, so I love that aspect of, of a sort of bracket little bit from a huge world you can imagine. And there's nothing else in that world. You just imagine it yourself. That reminds me of um, Neil Gaiman's short story. What is it? Think thankful for the milk or thank thank goodness for the milk where he's just going have you, has anybody read this short story i know which one you're talking about oh, but i no, i can't remember the title either yeah yeah because yeah. yeah. it, it's a slice of life and it's just the father like, oh, i gotta go get milk and then all of the crazy things that happen while he's going to go get milk and it's all just a slice of life Accepted that you know he's going to be in a hot air balloon and he's going to do all this other stuff. Yeah, if I had Neil Gaiman's mind, I, I'd be doing stuff like that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what it must have been like to be in the head of Terry uh, of, of Terry Pratchett. My God, <laughs> creating Discworld. Oh my God, one of my favorite one of my favorite all time worlds to to read. Discworld is fantastic. Oh, oh my god! Yeah, ever, and y'all ever seen the story? Uh, story Neil Gaiman told about you know you know his friendship with Terry Pratchett. Mm -hmm. Pratchett would like lose his mind and get like really really angry and furious, and it was like just so so just the complete opposite of what you would imagine somebody who wrote you know the color of magic would be like. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Is there any are there any worlds that you have read um, that you have found inspirational or remarkable in their creation? I know we mentioned Fonda Lee. Is there any 
any of you guys really think is incredible? Nicholas um, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the the stuff in um I I I I made a point of the the year that uh First Watch came out, I tried to read all the other Orbit debuts that year. I was not successful. Um because I'm a very slow reader, but just among that group there were so many like RJ Barker is amazing. Yeah. 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 And um and yeah, uh, like the whole Jade City and uh, that that series was so so cool. Um, and speaking of Renaissance Italy, um, uh, Melissa, her last name is escaping me, but um, her stuff is great too, and it's based on like Renaissance Italy. Oh man, now it's killing me. Is it Caruso? Yeah. Melissa Caruso. That's it. I'm getting old. There are bubbles in my brain. I can't remember all these things. So, but yeah, no, there's, I, I mean, I mean, that's half the reason we read this stuff is, is cause we love finding some new world. It doesn't even have to be all that different from something we found before. It's just the way the person brings it to life, the way that they describe it, the particular details they choose to deploy. Like that's what makes it special. Have you um, read um, Adrian Tchaikovsky's uh, Children yeah. of Time? Yes. It's, it's the opposite of that. It's not the small details. It's the fact that it's basically what happens. Actually, spoiler alert, uh, if you're going to read it, stop listening now. But not a massive spoiler alert. Basically, spiders get super developed on a planet mm -hmm. and start their own civilizations and discover, you know, um, air travel, space exploration. And the way he builds this world and makes it believable in sort of spider tech is just astonishing. And, and you know, it, it's very, very intelligent and makes you amazed by the guy. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I just Robert Jordan, of course. You know, I mean, Wheel of Time. I mean, that that's a. Yeah. You know, I mean, that, I I just I remember uh, reading that for the first time. It took me twice. I didn't I, I didn't like the, the the intro. Kind of bored me a little bit. And it took me, and I, then I picked it back up because I heard how great it was. And so I get through it, and as I'm getting along, I'm getting going through this, I'm seeing how massive this world is, and I'm like, how how is he keeping track of all this? I was just this is before I this was before I uh, wrote my first novel, and I'm like, my God, yeah, I mean, just the the enormity of that world and the complexity that he came up with, and it was as to me that was so inspiring. You know, I mean, even if you don't, I mean, even if it's that's not really your thing, if Wheel of Time's not your thing, you got to respect the the, the yeah. work that went into that mm -hmm. and what he was able to accomplish um, over the course of his life. Well, that's that's what I kind of feel like about uh, China China Meville's stuff is I can't really connect with it on an emotional level. But his world building and his imagination is unreal. It, it's incredible. So it, that's kind of a lesson in uh, books that I can I can settle into, even if they're not entirely going to to ring my bell, so to speak. I can still appreciate getting into them and just wandering around in that space. Appreciate them for what they are instead of exactly. worrying about what they're not. Yeah, exactly. One book that really is an archetype from one that I really try to think about a lot when I'm writing is World War Z. Yeah. Oh, and just how it's, 
I mean, it's more nonfiction than a lot of nonfiction oh, books. It was so good. But then zombies and just like yeah. making a world believable. It's probably the best I've read. Yeah, and for that specific trip. And life was really good at put, uh, bringing worlds to life, and like especially, I mean, she could tell she lived in New Orleans when she read about New Orleans. My God, it, you know, I mean, I'm from. I live about an hour and 45 minutes away from New Orleans. And I remember reading that book and going, yeah, she definitely lives here somewhere. And that's yeah. before I knew that she was from New Orleans. So she's either spent a lot of time here and it was a human, you, you could almost smell it. Yeah. You know, the way she, the way she did that. There's a, there's an author who's writing right now. Um, have you guys read, I can, I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce his name right. P.D.G. Clark. You guys know I've, I've, yeah, I've read his novellas. Oh, really, and he ha and his work has like that. Um, would you say that New Orleans feel to it? R Ring shout and stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Making a note. <laughs> the TV was the one. I, I don't remember the full title, but it was something with tram car in it. Yeah, it's the haunting of tram car fourteen. Yeah. One yeah, off. His real, his real building is just like. Well, that's what I liked about Nick uh, Nick Ames's books. Uh, it, it was like going, it was like going to a D and D campaign, except it was just. So, I mean, yeah, he had bugbears in it. My God, how cool! <laughs> <was that? laughs> he had everything before that thing was done. Like oh everything God. in the kitchen sink was in there. Yeah, right. I'm like, oh my God, loved, it. loved every minute of it. Yeah. Another one that I love because of just how like intricate it is, and also how extremely weird it is, is the uh, the Tower of Babel from Josiah Bancroft's yes. uh, series. That's one of my favorite like recent new Excellent. worlds. Yeah, mine too. Yeah. I really like those books. I, I like um, K. S. Veloso's Wolf of Oranyaro and uh, that, that series too. And uh, she had yeah, she had a a scene that really got me, I think it's in XR Falcon, um, where uh, the character is, it, she's she's finally like away from everybody and she's feeling safe. Like there's not a lot of people around. And so she's finally feeling safe enough to eat with her hands. Like she does, they do in their own country. And that to me was like, that's just, I remember that as being like, it was such a simple thing and like yeah. just a couple paragraphs of scene. And it said so much about the world and the character. You, you know, there was no explaining. There was no, it, it just, you saw that and felt the emotion and it like said everything about the entire world. I just, I, that was just an amazing thing. I'm constantly blown away by other writers, man. I, I'm just, you know, every time I pick up a new book, you know, there's so much great talent out there, you know, and it's, 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 it's a good, this is a good time to be a fantasy writer. You know, it's um, a fantasy reader. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's so many great writers out there. I, I'm, you know, I, I, though, and I know the eighties gets a bad rap for the shallow catch, you know, because they were put pulping out a bunch of, you know, trying to, trying to recapture, um, but they, you got to think Terry, Terry Brooks came out with Magic Kingdom for sale during that era. Mm -hmm. That was when Anne McCaffrey was hot. You know, I mean, that was, you know, that, that was when all of the Dragon Riders was, I know it came out in the 70s, but it was like very popular out through the 80s. 
and all the way up into today, I'm just constantly, every book I pick up, I'm just constantly amazed by just the level of talent and creativity. Um, did the come out in the 80s too? The Belgariad and the Melorian? Yeah, that was the, that was the 80s. Yeah, yeah. That, it's hugely influential on uh, readers and writers alike. What would I like, and we're going to see more of, is the worlds in games. Like I love the worlds in Fallout, the new, newer Fallout games. Mm -hmm. um, Fallout New Vegas, which takes part all around Las Vegas and the Mojave Desert, which I particularly love. Final Fantasy Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. I'm, I'm a Borderlands player. I have, like hour, I have a thousand hours on Borderlands. Yeah. Like Six hundred hours on Borderlands Three. And the world is just fantastic. Yeah, I used to have a life. I used to be able to play games, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I turned my son on to D and D. Now he has every book on the planet, like freaking these dice that are made of looks like it like gemstones or something. And I'm like, and all his friends are playing that, and and they're into gaming. He's actually going to go to college. He's uh, wants to go to college to. Uh, for game design. Yeah, so, actually, I, do get play, I get to play Zelda with my kid, the Zelda Breath of the Wild, which is just astonishing where you can stand on a mountain and look over miles of scenery and know all the little bits in between. And you can go there. Yeah. Um, well, I got to be super dad and got him, I got to introduce him to Andy Gavin, uh, who uh, was the founder of Naughty Dog Games. So, <laughs> I've known Andy for a while, and I got to, my son wants to do this, so I got him on the phone phone with Andy. And he, I was like, "Yes, I'm super dad." You know, <laughs> dad points. <laughs> we've got a we've got a question from a viewer Arena. Um, what's one real world idea, aspect, or culture you'd like to write about? Something that you're interested in. Hmm. I read the other day that ancient humans hibernated. Um, I'd be happy to join. The, oh, I'm sorry. I'd be happy to join the D and D game. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I love the idea of going back a bit, going um, Neanderthal, Neanderthal. But when the Neanderthal and ancient humans met, um, that's what I might look at next. Okay. Yeah, since I since I never got to uh, publish those first couple of historical fantasy books, I wrote. I'd, I'd still like to find a way to at least repurpose some of that knowledge. So either Aztec Mexico or, uh, you know, ancient Rome, especially the, the provinces like Egypt. Rome is the gift that gives forever. I oh mean, yeah. You, you yeah know, I mean, you all the way from pre pre Imperial Rome all the way till to Eastern empire. And you have, just this wealth, yeah, of, you know, of material to draw from. Endless, oh, endless stuff. Hundred years or something. Yeah, it spanned fifteen hundred years. Well, I think the Roman Empire what got rose right, right around. Well, as a not as an empire, but as a as a powerful nation, went around two hundred uh, two hundred BC when it was just mm -hmm. a, a, a well, it was a monarchy that became a republic, then went back, to, then went back to basically a monarch, uh, you know, a monarchy. With of course Julius Caesar, you know, and all, all that, but um, it, it, but even after that, you get goes, you know, when the when the Western Empire fell, people always think when Rome fell, that was the end of Rome. It wasn't. It was no. it was near, near the end of Rome. Yeah. It went on for several, hundreds and hundreds of years after after the fall of Rome, 
uh, based in Constantinople. Yeah. Where is that coming from? Um, so that's all the questions I've got. Is there any questions from the audience? Any, anything? So there's a question for Travis here. Uh oh. <laughs> While writing Flesh Eater, was it hard building the relationship between Cole and is that Lilio? I assume. Yeah. A little bit easy because of all the similarities. Um I mean, I it was once you like get to really know your characters and their like personalities and just like the way they behave and interact with each other, I feel like building a relationship between them, whether it's like a positive relation relationship or a negative one, which uh the book two in my series is gonna have a lot of uh, negative relationships <laughs> between people. Yeah. Um, yeah, like building those just comes really natural because you you know how these people are gonna like butt heads or how they're gonna mesh well. Um, so yeah, so I, I found it really easy and really organic. And that relationship was actually not even part of any of the outline for the book. Um, and it just it happened because it came so naturally. It just it just happened in the story and then became like a central aspect of the entire series now. Okay. I'm gonna cut this to two more questions because we're we're really going here. Um, Dale, would you explore the world of Fifth Watch in the future? Uh, I'd love to. Yeah. Um, right now there are no <laughs> definitive plans for more books. Um, but uh, I would love to have the opportunity to to go back to that world and and do some more stuff there because I love those characters and I love that setting. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I I would love to do that at some point. Okay. Um, I'm going to leave this last question from um, Zach Argyle. Are there any bits of world building that you had in your first draft, but then you removed later? Right. Yes. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> when i wrote the first draft of the barge blade there was a whole race of of people called the sylvan and i sent it to the editor i had to genocide the whole bunch of them <laughs> they were gone and i'm like but but they got pointed ears, man. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't like pointed ears? You know. <laughs> so, yes, Absolutely. I was very sad about it. Or <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, all the time with some kind of like cool little detail, like some little thing that you're like, oh man, I can't wait to get this in there, and then along the way yeah. you're just like, damn it, it doesn't fit. <laughs> Yeah. Gotta come out. Yeah, I, I had to learn so much 1920s slang. Yeah. Well, I didn't had to, I got to. It was amazing. I loved it. Yeah. But I realized really quickly that it was just gonna turn into a cartoon if I included as much as I wanted to. So I had to just yeah. keep constantly pulling it back oh. out and back out just so it didn't sound so silly. Yeah. <laughs> whenever I whenever I take a big bit out, I put it in a different document, which I call offcuts for each book, thinking it's so good, so much of it. So much time and I'll definitely use that again. And I've never looked at any of that. <laughs> 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 oh, 
All right. Um, so let's um, just to finish off. Uh, I know that you guys introduced your books and stuff when we first started, but we have actually picked up a lot of people who probably didn't see the first question. So if you want to just briefly tell us about what you got going on, what you got going on for 20, 2021. Okay. Uh, I'm My past stuff is the uh, Fifth Ward series from Orbit Books, consisting of First Watch, Friendly Fire, and Good Company. Um, and uh, last summer, I released uh, Realm Lords, which was a novel I did for um, Warhammer Age of Sigmar, uh, a tie-in book. And I've done a couple pieces of uh, short fiction for them that have appeared in some of their anthologies as well, the new Dire Chasm anthology and also Oaths and Conquests. So. I'm per currently wrapping up the um, final book of the Godling Chronicles sequel. And then I'll be finishing up the final book of the Sorcerer's Song series for Tor books. That's exciting. And then I'll be fit. Everything I'm writing right now are finales. Series <laughs> finales. That's so I'm the last book, the last book in the Akiri series and the last book in the Veil series. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be a busy, busy, busy kid. <laughs> Busy's good. Angus, what about you? What do you got going on for 2021? Um, well, I'm working on my kid's book, which is middle grade book of set in a world where dinosaurs never die out and have replaced uh, vehicles and all mechanisms are now dinosaurs. So instead of aircon, you have a big dinosaur with massive wings wafting across America, cool buildings down. Um, they're bred to be happy doing this. They've all been sort of bred by humans over millions of years. Um, so that's the one to look out for from me. But given my sales figures in America, you probably haven't read any of my stuff. So uh, <laughs> I'd start with Avery Ryan. Uh, my first one, and if you like that, read the rest. Um, I had my debut novel, Radio, came out this year. There yeah. it is. Um, it's $1.99 for Kindle right now, if people are interested. Um, I was an FP SPFBO semifinalist, so that was awesome. Um, I'm hoping to get another book out in 2022, but we'll see how that goes. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Travis, what about you? Um, I've got a few standalones out that you can read if you don't want to commit to a series. I've got Balam Spring and The Narrows and Spit and Song. And last October, I put out book one of my first series. Uh, it's called Flesh Eater. And the sequel is called Mother Pig, and it's coming out this summer. And then the finale will be out in February after that. Okay, um, well, my series is the uh, Tyrian Empire series. Um, Fortune's Fool placed second in Spiffo 5, which was the one before this one. Um, it is a very large book. It's book one in the series, and if you would rather kind of dip your toes in with a smaller book, I have Smuggler's Fortune, um, which is technically a novella, but it's kind of on the on the borderline between it and a short novel, um, which is kind of a prequel standalone um, about some of the same characters and I'm working on the uh, sequel to Fortune's Fool called Fool's Promise and I'm in revisions with that and planning on getting that out this year and I'm also in revisions for a Portal Fantasy which 
I still haven't decided on a title for that one, but it's, it is in revisions and I'm, I'm planning on getting that one out this year too. That's a completely different series, which is kind of a, um, kind of a cold war espionage. Um, it's quantum magic thing crossed with a North American kind of setting. So, um, I'm excited about that one too. All right. Well, I just want to thank all the authors for taking some time and sitting down with us and talking about world building. This was a really fun panel. Yeah. yeah really thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. And I want to thank everybody who came to the audience and asked great questions too. So y'all have a really great day. Check out some of the other panels and we'll see you later. Yeah.